Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 138, and today's guest is Gary Hoberman, CEO and founder of Uncork. A perfect way to describe Gary is the word fearlessness, and it is actually one of the core values at Uncork. He was a sponsored skateboarder as a child, which taught him that it was okay to hit the ramp as hard as you can, because at that point, there's no turning back and failure is okay. You might get some bumps and bruises, but you can certainly try again. This mentality is definitely carried over into his professional world as an entrepreneur. Uncork is the only no-code application platform built for the enterprise. The company recently announced an $80 million Series B round of funding led by Capital G, and this was after raising their Series A round of funding back in April of this year as well. In this episode of our podcast, we'll cover lots of great topics like Gary's career in terms of working his way through the professional ranks in the financial services industry to eventually lead a global organization as MetLife's co-CIO. As a holder of eight patents, how he was able to inspire innovation in larger companies, why 93% of all projects fail, and how that led Gary down the path of starting on Cork. All the details on Uncork in terms of their technology and the value that it is driving within the enterprise. How negative feedback from investors turned out to be a positive motivator. Advice for corporate executives on taking the entrepreneurial leap and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Have you checked out our YouTube channel? It is loaded with lots and lots of great content from our interviews with founders, executives, and investors. You will find lots of advice shared from these podcast interviews, plus our popular Inside and CXO briefing series. Go to youtube.com backslash VentureFizz to check it out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Gary. Gary, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Keith. It's a pleasure being here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because we got a, a lot to cover. Um, Uncork just recently announced a new round of funding, so we're going to talk a lot about that. But in my travels of doing a lot of digging on your background, I stumbled across a fun fact that I don't see too often with, uh, with some of the people that I've interviewed is you were actually a sponsored skateboarder at some point uh, in, your, in your life here. So how does skateboarding compare to being an entrepreneur? Yeah, you know, it's funny because in my brain, by the way, I could still skateboard. I do have a skateboard here. My team won't let me go near it. But um, but it's definitely something that I'm still in my brain think I could do as good as I used to do when I was a, a you know kid. And I, I actually thought at one point I was going to just be a, sp- a sponsor skateboard. Tony Hawk was just starting out. Um, it was an amazing time in that journey. He didn't yet have any video games named after him, of course, yet. But, um, but so did, like, you ever, like, did you ever like meet him and compete against him or anything? I, I, I met him. I didn't compete against him, but I used to do demonstrations outside of the, the competitions he would have in Long Island, where I'm from, in New York. And uh, and yes, yeah, so like to me, I, I remember vividly. Like I remember, I always loved balancing and skateboarding and surfing and now snowboarding. I still continue to do. But with skateboarding, there was one moment in time. There was one summer where I simply started to just tell myself, "I've done this before," even though I hadn't. It was it's a confidence booster. It's this idea that you're going towards a ramp or you're doing a trick. And once you start going towards that ramp, and I used to put a ramp next to a car and jump the car lengthwise. So it was really <laughs> different. And when you're, when you're starting that out, nowhere in your mind could you ever have this concept of failure because, you know, you're going to basically picture you're going to land it, you're going to do it. And you're going to hit the ramp as hard as you possibly can. And there's no going back the second that happens. And that it's a fearlessness. And actually, it's one of our uh, five values in Uncork is actually 
fearlessness, but it's this idea that, you know, you're going to hit the ramp, you're going to hit it as hard as you can, and you're going to land it. And the truth is, you know, if you don't, so what? You try again. There's nothing wrong with failing and not landing. And so you got a little cuts and bruises and you stand up and you brush yourself off, get right back on and try it again. And it was that idea that you could actually do it and then succeed. And, and I guess even, even before that, I mean, my, my dad was an entrepreneur, you know, his whole life till he passed away, 35, 40 years. It meant I was using computers before anyone else. But like he, I got to see that in his business style, this idea that you could actually do anything, achieve anything. And, uh, and it's an amazing journey to actually be, be living that now. That's awesome. So you need to put a, a half ramp in on Cork's offices. You know, I definitely thought about it. And I used to have a half pipe in, in my house, behind the house. And uh, my sister, who, who's a top attorney and also our, our counsel, would say she used to study for the bar and hear me going up and down and doing flips. And I can't imagine what that's like for her. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was a journey. And it was, you know, I surfed as well. And the one thing I still do is I still snowboard. I did, I did some pretty aggressive snowboarding last year. It's the one thing which, you know, you fall and it's a little softer in the ground <laughs> not much but a little so so you could still uh have a lot of fun and experiment so where, where did you grow up so i grew up between queens and long beach so always in new york always public schools in queens grow, going to school from from public school through high school elementary through high school even went to college at nyu so i, I stayed in the city uh to me you know new york is exciting it's diverse there is no more city more diverse and uh, traveling out of New York in a global company that I've always worked, it's it's easy to do, and um, and yeah, and and you know I grew up a block away from the beach in Long Beach, and uh, my mom's house is still there, and and we go visit, and it, it's amazing. It's just it's a different. Uh, I always feel like the air by the ocean is crisper, cleaner, and you think a little clearer. Now at NYU, you studied uh, marketing and MIS. So you talked about you know your dad was an entrepreneur, and you got exposed to computers early on. What um, what was your first computer, and then why did you decide to study those two fields? Oh, they actually, the question, it's, it's, I get to answer both. So my dad is an entrepreneur, and I literally was indexing comic books on punch card machines, IBM punch card machines the size of the room I'm in. Um, that was probably the first computer, but I had, you know, a Timex Sinclair. I had the TRS-80. I had the VIC-20, um, you know, Commodore 64. I went through that whole generation. I think I probably did my 10,000 hours programming winning Fortran awards in seventh grade and eighth grade and building systems before I entered college. And when I entered college at NYU, I actually wanted nothing to do with computers. I was, I was burned out. I was like, I've done it. I did. I, I know it. It's easy. And I actually wanted to go into advertising to do pitches and marketing and advertising creative. Right. And it's probably one of the unique things about me is like, I literally could with both hands equally bad and I could do everything with either hand equally bad. But um, reality was I could be the creative and the analytical very easily, which mm -hmm. is, um, I was majoring in marketing. I had no, I, no inkling to go into computer science or MIS. And you take that one elective class that you're forced to take computer science. And I'm like, pretty good at this. And I wound up doing both degrees. And then I wound up actually working right on the foreign exchange out of college, which was in computer science. Again, to me, everything I'm doing is marketing and MIS. It actually is, is probably who I am the best. So I guess as an extension of that, what were some of the first jobs straight out of undergrad? Yeah, so when I graduated NYU, I, I started right out uh, consulting on the foreign exchange, doing trading systems for money transfers uh, across the world. Um, and then I 
I moved up. Actually, the, it was pretty cool. It was a consulting gig, and I won Rookie of the Year award at this big consulting firm. Um, and they started billing me out at a senior PA when I was 22. And I'm like, wait, that's a senior. <laughs> of course. Um, they so I, actually, I actually went and got the senior PA job at Bankers Trust. And um, I built my first platform there, which was on the private bank of Bankers Trust. It was a system I invented that started to, in 1994, it changed the way all their technology was driven. Um, and then I spent about a year and a half there before joining City for 16 years, managing director at City, Wall Street, trading systems through mutual funds, through corporate, and learned a lot from City. I mean, it was an amazing experience, amazing leadership, uh, so much so that I followed one leader to MetLife to be their global CIO, and, uh, and the rest is history from where I am here. So at, at MetLife, um, you were running an organization that was across 47 countries and a budget of, I think, $1.2 billion, I think I saw out there. So, so how do you lead an organization of that size and magnitude? I mean, this is massive scale. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's all about creating leaders. So to me, you're never going to be able to micromanage. You're going to have to have faith in the leaders that are around you and let them drive, let them own, let them surprise you as you've surprised others to get there. That's, that's been how I moved up in city. I was probably one of the youngest managing directors in Ops and Tech. And it was, you know, I was able to surprise people with what I could achieve that others couldn't. And I believe every one of my team has that ability and, you know, they continue to see it and live it. So uh, in MetLife, it is, you know, driving technology. I, I guess one of my proudest accomplishments in MetLife was, um, there was actually two. One was I, uh, one of my patents, for something called Infinity, beat Amazon's Kindle for best use of digital. So we took first, they took second for Amazon. Not many CIOs could say they beat Amazon at best use of digital in PR week, which is a good place to be. And uh, the second coolest one was when I got to bring my three kids into see uh, the day, uh, bring your daughter and son to work day. And I got to do the whole hosting for the entire company all the kids around what's the future of technology. And the funniest thing was, Keith, it's, we put, we thought of this great idea. We put all these, it was about 120 kids. We, I was hosting for three hours. So we put them into groups of six and gave them each a fake business card and said, you're a business analyst. You're the engineer. You're the tester. You're the business. You're the coder. You're, and we gave them each real jobs. And then we gave them an instruction to build a system that we'd given and you walk around the room in about half an hour and watch how these, you know, six to 12 year olds are interacting. And one kid, I'll never forget, he was sitting on the side of the table, just throwing his hands like this. And he was probably eight. And I said, hey, what's wrong? What's wrong? He goes, they, they don't know what they're doing. They won't listen to me. They go doing all the wrong things. And it was, it was enacting corporate life yeah. at a, a perfect scale from our perspective. And it was a lot of fun. Well, something else that I thought was really interesting is the level of innovation that you're driving throughout, you know, your career in these organizations. Oftentimes people think large bureaucratic organization, they, you know, typically can't continue to innovate and, you know, eventually startups will eat their lunch or they will end up acquiring startups to try to keep their edge. But th that wasn't the case with the organizations that you were a part of and running. Um, so, so, so how, do, how did you keep that mentality in such a large organization? Yeah, it's, um, it goes back to the skateboarder fearlessness, I guess it was. I would walk in the way that application that beat Amazon Kindle, I walked into the board meeting with a live demo to say, here's what we're doing. 
it wasn't like asking for permission. It was, here's what we're doing. And then the legal teams helped us figure out every barrier to entry that they would have previously put up as a barrier and said, you can't move forward. And we worked through it. Um, at City, I had seven patents, uh, six are in production still. And many of them are in the trading systems. The most critically important systems in City, I was responsible for and running and keeping them up. And reality is when you when you look at that, it's entrepreneurship. It's running every every project is not a project. It's how is it going to improve customers' lives, shareholders' lives? Even if you had a list behind me, as I always did, of six people that wanted to run me over with a truck, internal in the company. I always did. I always had these six people. One person called me one time and said, are you looking both ways? Um, and I was managing director. He was a managing director. And I felt like if I didn't have six people that wanted to run me over, I wasn't doing my job trying to change things. Mm -hmm. So I was always trying to push the limits and say, how could I fix my department? How do I fix the company? How do I fix the group? And I left the corporate world when I said, I think I know now how to fix the industry. And to your question, Keith, it's um, our whole company value on cork. We named it based on we're uncorking the competitive advantage that lies in great companies, helping them succeed and deliver for their customers and shareholders in ways they haven't ever before in 20, 30 years achieved. So we're helping them fix the industry and, and really moving it forward versus competing with them. So we don't see ourselves at all as a competitor to these companies. We see themselves as an empowerment to help them succeed. Well, I want to definitely get into lots and lots of details of Uncork, but before I launch into that, so what was this application that you built that ended up beating out Amazon? Yeah, so um, I was literally on a plane at one point, probably 2011, and it was one of those plane rides which you don't wish for anyone, where like they're, they're serving drinks, and the second they stopped and they said they have an engine issue, malfunction, we have to immediately land somewhere. And you know, Keith, what I'm doing is I have... Uh, two kids, one kid on the way, very young. I'm using my iPhone to start to record career advice and other things for my kids, thinking like, like, hey, I, my dad gave me this, and this is things that I could pass on. And then I'm like, well, this iPhone's going to go down with me, actually. So, like, that's not going to work. So the idea that I came up with was a digital time capsule where in an application you upload videos and passwords and audio and documents, and then you target a private network of who should receive those assets at a future date or event 50 years out, 100 years out, or uh, dependent on some event, you know, that could occur, like a wedding, like a graduation, like a passing. So we actually launched it in 11 countries um, and still something I use. My bucket list is on there for myself. So when I turn 50, it's going to hit me with a bunch of things I forgot to do that I want to do. Uh, you know, my son turned 13. It would actually deliver all my dad's videos, you know, since he passed. And basically, it actually will deliver them to him. So um, we actually were one of the top, top 10 apps in Hong Kong at one point on the App Store. And then we were, uh, I think, 100,000 downloads in China. And just it was in 11 countries. And I'm very, still very proud. It still feels like my baby, even though it's not. Yeah, but, that's uh, an amazing idea. Yeah, in 2013, we launched it. So just to show you how it was six years ago that that concept's been out in production wow. um, and driving. Yeah. Very cool. Well, okay, so there's a statistic out there that says 93% of IT projects fail, which is staggering, right? So, so why is that number so large? Yeah, and I guess the real way to validate that is 
we walk into a client's meeting and one of the first questions we ask the client, whether it's the CEO or the CIO or a board member, basically ask, so how many times right now have you and the business sat down, technology and the business sat down and said, what you just delivered is not what we wanted. So this, this conversation, so what typically happens is the business writes up a set of requirements and it doesn't matter what methodology is used, but there's a requirement set given to the technologist who tries to implement that as best he or she can. And then it gets tested, get rolled out. And by the time it goes back to the business, the business will say, that's absolutely not working. It actually increased my cost. It's reducing sales. It's not what I needed. And there's this conversation that typically occurs where technology and the business go into, that's not what I wanted. The technology will say, well, let me show you, you signed off on it. Here's your signature. You signed off on that document. At every stage gate, you signed off on this. So you're accountable. And the business will go, you should have known better. And this back and forth. So in every client meeting we walk into, we ask that question, and 100% of the time, they're like, were you just here two hours ago or were you here yesterday? This occurs twice a day, three times a day. And the problem with that is it doesn't actually get escalated to the board level because what happens is when it gets to the board level, everything becomes green and everything's, it's, we're doing everything we should and we'll be baseline and come back. But the reality is if you ask the business what they, if they got what they wanted as from it, the answer is no, 93% of the time. And my metric, when you're a CIO, there's only two metrics you track, on time and on budget. They mean nothing. Did I deliver something when I said I would at the cost I said I would? If it almost bankrupts a company, that means nothing, right? Yes, we delivered it. It's on budget. It's on time. But it didn't actually achieve the value. So I would always call the business after we deployed something and just ask the question, how do we do? Is it achieving your revenue? Is it achieving your expense reduction? Mm-hmm. And since I've, since I've you know, been out of college, that's been how I actually acted was actually just talk about true value. So, yes, yeah, statistically, 93% of these IT projects, large IT projects, are actually failing to deliver value. I think I saw something that almost a third of them almost bankrupt the company. And um, it's, it's staggering. And we want people to talk about this. We actually want the world to say, hey, am I actually getting value from these investments or am I better off taking $10 million and opening a restaurant across the street? (laughs) Which is, we we would tell you you have a better chance at the restaurant than you do at the project. That's crazy. So so what what led you, was it kind of this staggering statistic and just running such a global organization that you're like, you know, there's got to be a better way. And, you know, so what led you down the path of, you know, starting on Cork? Yeah, I guess it's two things. One was my entire life I've been on this adventure to say, how do I deliver value faster to the business? Even if it means eliminating even my own job, which is coding. I mean, I'm, I'm, I call myself a hacker by background. I still code. And coding to me is a skill. It's an art form. It's a challenge. It's beautiful when it's done right. Reality is that people just pump code out and that's not right. That's not what the goal of coding is, but um, it actually was, how do I actually deliver value faster? And Reality is the conclusion we came to was the business actually will never know what they need until it's in production. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how good they are, how well they know their business. Regulations change, requirements change, industry changes, competitors move faster. Everything changes on the fly. And reality is we get to production and then we're surprised when it's not what they wanted. And things changed around it. So the, the truth was how do you deliver what they need best is to actually do it 
where you could change it on the fly. Get them to production in weeks. Let them change it after it's in production with no risk. Let them say it. By the way, hey, we're going to go live. We're going to expect you to change it five times before you actually are happy. And do it in a way where you only charge if they are getting value as opposed to paying for predicted value. So this, the goal was to actually do it by eliminating all the barriers. And the biggest barrier is code. That's why we call ourselves a no-code platform. We are a true and the first ever pioneering the enterprise no-code revolution is eliminating the barriers to change and barriers to getting value from technology across every industry. And we built ground up this concept and platform of creating software in an entirely new way, probably the biggest revolution and change since I started coding Perl in 1994 to do web. Um, it's probably the, the biggest advancement since, since, you know, using the CGI scripts on the server side when web first started to come into play. So how does it actually work? Like on Quark and your platform, like how does it work? And like, how are you know, companies able to get value out of building out these applications without code? Yeah, so number one thing is uh, coming as a CIO, we built the whole company based on would we kick ourselves out of our own office if we showed up. Number one thing is we hired a chief information security officer before engineers. We are storing personal privacy data. We're storing it across the world for, you know, Fortune 100 companies, dozens of clients. And we did that by building the system based on single tenant. We don't believe multi-tenant makes any sense anymore. Cloud has basically shown us that multi-tenant really doesn't mean anything. So single tenant, no clients combined with each other, yet we internally work like a multi-tenant job, all the benefits of it. And specifically, it's around when you think about software. So I'll give you the best use cases. Um, so capture customer data. So give me a little bit about you as a customer and maybe, uh, you know, you're doing, you're purchasing a home or you're insuring a home or you're opening a bank account or you're applying for life insurance, or you're applying in the DMV to get a driver's license. Everything has the same problem, which is, who are you? What are you trying to do? What's your, uh, let me get some information about your risk, so credit score, appraised value of a home, um, financial information, wellness information, your health score, and let me risk assess, let me underwrite, let me integrate with you. That entire business is the same across every industry. And yet we treat them all differently. We provide solutions traditionally and build solutions when we think that something's hard, we think we need to build it and create it from scratch. So in Uncork, you start with um, who's my customer? So is it the consumer? Is it the call center? Is it the operations desk? Or is it headless as an API? All of it's the same to us. And then let me start drawing visually capturing data through the fields. So when you enter your social and on court, let's go out and get a credit check from a provider automatically. When the credit score comes back based on the credit score, let me go out and ask you a series of different questions on your financial wellness or health wellness. And within minutes, just drag and drop, we could create any application, anything from every single application that you've ever seen running in an enterprise we could create with just simple drag and drop in minutes in front of the client. And it's typically how we work is, you know, we don't respond to requests for proposals or information. We simply say, what's your toughest challenge? So, you know, we're in the door, we're sitting with the CEO and the board members and the CIOs. We say, what's been holding you back? If you could wave a magic wand, 
What would you want to see? And they give us the thing that's the hardest. And then in a few, an hour, a day or two, we build it. And we say, here it is. It's working. It's production ready. You want to go? Not a prototype. It's, it's ready. Let's move. Um, and, and that's basically how fast we move and how fast we go. Um, and again, it's an, a pricing model, which is no risk to them. We'll be taking risk on basically on our side because we believe it works so much and uh, I could show it. So it's like so you're selling to large global, you know, Fortune 500, 150, whatever number, right? Like large global organizations. So how did you get started, right? That's usually one of the challenges that entrepreneurs are face is you build technology, yet selling it is a whole different animal. So, so how did you get started with selling to these larger enterprises? Yeah, and uh, and the, the truth is, like coming from that world where we manage, I manage 1.2 billion of spend. Like we know how to sell to large enterprise. We know what the architects are looking for. We know what the technologists are looking for. We know what the procurement teams and how they function better than most companies do. Um, but we needed a few core clients, a few key clients that basically we could start with. And um, in the press release, we mentioned how you know Liberty Mutual was quoted. They they have been an incredible. First client to say, hey, go fix this. Go fix personal auto insurance. Then go fix specialty commercial. Let's go through this. And um, we were live with them since, I think, November 2017. And they they helped us drive the requirements. But the base that we went to them with was, here's what we, we're going to build as our base and core. We built it. We delivered it on time exactly when we said we would to drive value. And most importantly, now with dozens of clients, all Fortune 100 clients with their own unique needs, some are saying go do sales, some are saying do service, some are saying do underwriting and risk, and some are saying do back office call center and reconciliation. With all these clients, each client is saying, I need this, I need this new feature. And what we're doing is we're crowdsourcing requirements across Fortune 100 companies in ways those companies themselves have never achieved even internally to get scale within their IT groups. Mm -hmm. So we're able to provide a new feature and build it once. So our engineers, our engineers create these components, we code. And that component that gets published to all the clients, all automatically, everyone gets a brand new feature they didn't even know existed. And they could use that feature immediately without writing code or they won't even be able to override it, which is why we believe you should never generate code, so we don't. And that client demand, Keith, that, that demand from the clients on requirements is driving demand for deployments, where typically we start with one customer and that first use case becomes three within a matter of two weeks. Mm-hmm. And that we, those demand for requirements have actually driven our growth, exponential growth, and um, it's been an incredible network effect that we're seeing happen. Well, and you can tell when we you know, kind of highlight a little bit, and I want to dig deeper on the funding side. So uh, in April of this year, you announced a $22 million Series A, and just a uh, you know, matter of months later, um, you know, we're, we're at a B round of $80 million, um, you know, led by Capital G, which is uh, you know, Google's parent company, Alphabet's growth equity arm. So, so that's a very A to B. Like, I mean, that's, that's amazing. So, so what has kind of like, been that catalyst for that rapid you know, amount of capital that you needed to raise for the B round so quickly? Yeah, when we did the A round, we were so privileged to, to choose Goldman and work with Goldman to lead the Series A. It couldn't have been a better group for us. Um, they are one of our biggest clients, and they're also one of the companies and why we chose them that was able to drive our platform to handle the most complex investment bank needs 
so that everyone downstream, all the companies that are smaller than Goldman Sachs, actually work out of the box. Mm-hmm. And any company that has security requirements are not going to be as stringent. So everything else is easy to us. But when we actually did the Series A with Goldman, we focused on using the money to actually make our platform more self-service so people could actually build apps faster outside of Encore. Mm-hmm. We've since trained 1,800 uh, clients and partners on building applications using Uncork outside of Uncork since that round, just earlier in, since April. And the platform itself has more features now and capabilities now than even I think we thought when we first created it. So that drive has enabled us to empower more people to use Uncork. Now with Capital G coming in, our clients are demanding of us to go to different regions, different countries, different product lines. We opened up public sector, already signed our first government contract within just a few weeks. And we are looking into healthcare. We have a healthcare client asking us to drive the next revolution of healthcare using Uncork. So all these new sectors and regions are actually areas we're going to put a capital G's investment to work and drive expansion globally as we open up offices in London and open up offices in Asia and um, really, really expand based on client demand and what they're looking for us to do, which is clients are driving driving us in ways like it's incredible when you sit down and you think of the clients and they're, where they're trying to get to. We could be their only technology left in the company. Like that's our simple goal. It's not, it's bold. It's definitely a skateboarding vision, which is you're hitting the ramp. Our goal is, could we actually be the only technology remaining in every company? The answer is yes. And we're hosting it as well. So reality is that's the entire thing you will ever need to run an enterprise. And the growth from an employee base, I'm sure, has been just rocket ship and and hiring across all different functional categories in the company, right? Yeah. I mean, when we first started, we were in a conference room, smaller than the one I'm sitting here. And there was was 10 of us at the point we were screaming over each other, delivering for clients. And then when we moved to our first office, it was I think it was only like six months later from when we created the company. Our first office felt like it was 3,000 square feet in New York City. Like, this is amazing. Massive. This is going to last. It's massive. Like, how are we going to fill this up? I remember, and we, we ordered desks. We built all our own desks. The best part, Keith, was we had to install whiteboards, and I only wanted glass whiteboards. It was my dream to always have glass whiteboards in the company. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we did it all ourselves. We were, we were scrappy, you could say. So we're putting up the glass whiteboards, and my CMO is holding the board. We're holding the board with my CEO. My CMO is drilling through it. And we got so cocky that, like, why do we need to template this? Let's just drill through the glass, crack the whole thing. Um, <laughs> so, so, um, so, like, that was office number two. Office number three was just about seven months later, and we moved to, like, almost 9,000 square feet, an entire floor. Again, I remember I was skateboarding through that floor and I have a video of that somewhere of me actually going through the columns. Yeah. And I'm like, this is huge. And where we are now, we kept that, and we moved across the street to 40,000 square feet. We started this year with 35 full-time employees, and we're up to about 165, maybe 170. Wow. Growing to five or six a week. And that's the best part is, to me, what I learned throughout my career was, you know, number one, don't hire people like yourself. Like, that's the best advice I could ever give anyone is the hidden bias we have to hiring is hire everyone different than you. My entire executive team, who back to what I said earlier, I don't need to be in the office. I don't need to be in a meeting. Like, they drive without me all the time, and I'm so confident. Each of them is nothing like me and nothing like each other. And that diversity of thought portrays down throughout the organization 
Um, and just, we have the most incredible talent. How, that's what we have is we could hire anyone. We could attract anyone, keep anyone. And they, um, my favorite thing was one employee was telling another employee, we asked, why did you come here? And he said, well, that other employee, my friend said, he's never had so much fun waking up to go to work. Like he's looking forward every day to come in. And that's what it's got to be about. Yeah. That's, you know, that's why I'm here. Yeah. So, so uh, building a company is hard. So, so what do you think has been the, 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 uh, the, like the biggest you know, lesson learned that you, you know, look back to the earlier days or whenever in time uh, that you know, you'd want to, I mean, you just shared one of, of the hiring, but um, you know, what's something that you would want to pass along to other entrepreneurs? Yeah, I mean, number one thing they need to do is learn the problems, learn the business. We knew it. It's one of the advantages we had. But what I would say is, um, you know, to me, the funding, understanding funding and investors' mindset and their thought process I was like, I felt like, I guess, when we created the company first, we, I felt like looking back, I was kindergarten and I had no clue. I was, I was dancing around whatever it was and there was no. And so we actually self-funded because we came to a decision that investors, the most incredible named investors out there understand consumer, but they don't actually understand enterprise as well as people coming from it. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of investors looked at us as we will fail. So much so that what we did with all the feedback we got from the top investors in the world was we put it on a wall in our office, 20-foot wall, and called it the quote wall. Every single quote, we didn't say who said what, but it was basically our way to say, here's what everyone said about us. We're too old. We're going to fail. We don't know where enterprise sells. We're not entrepreneurial enough. All these negative things that we heard. And um, and that's that's our story. So so to me, it was it's... I wouldn't change a single thing ever. Like we had to go through that journey of meeting an investor and the excitement. It feels like you're dating and you're going through and there's excitement and it's, and, um, and reality was we decided to self fund and focus on revenue on customers. Um, and we did. And then, you know, when we had revenue from four of the biggest companies, um, we were able to then basically pick the investors we wanted to join us. And we have, and it's been an incredible journey. So do you think more, more entrepreneurs should probably, you know, revenue is great, right? Product challenge revenue. Those are amazing. And then look to, um, you know, customers as potential investors You Goldman led, you know, your a round. So is that something that maybe entrepreneurs don't think about enough? I, I do. I, I think also one advice I would give them that I think people drop in. It's one, one investor early on said, get one customer. It's actually a quote on a wall. It said, focus on only one customer. And I, disagreed. Actually, we had term sheets we turned down and said, we don't agree with that. We want five customers because number one, we're going to become very dependent on a customer who is risky, meaning there's management changes, there's direction changes, there's funding changes, the market changes. If we lose that customer, we'll immediately have to go back for more funding. And if that customer brings us down a direction that's important to them, there's nothing saying that that will work for others. Mm-hmm. That could be a bespoke custom deployment that won't. So we focused on five initial customers all at the same time. And there was only like three to five of us and we were doing this. So, you know, we had to basically, uh, you know, deliver and we didn't miss a date since we created the company. Um, and we're running, we want to be the best run company out there. It's what we are. And so we're, we're driving, you know, we, I think we're eight quarters in a row of missing, of uh, hitting targets, never missing a target quarters and delivery. Uh, so I would definitely give the advice is learn the business, number one, understand the problems, um, focus on the customers and the revenue and the product market fit versus funding. 
and um, and then pick the right investors to help you drive from there. So you you had a really cool uh, picture, I think, from a post that I, I think I saw on LinkedIn of you like actually jumping, and you, I think your dad took it. It was like what your caption said, and uh, it said something like, you know, "I'm sure my parents cringed, you know, multiple times throughout your career riding skateboards or doing whatever." So um, so what do your kids like to do? Are they skateboarders or like doing half pipes at the snow park? You know, like. You know, it's funny because I look at that and I still think about like what it must have felt like. My dad would sit on the beach after Hurricane Hugo passed with a the eye of the storm just passed. I was in the ocean surfing with him filming me and, you know, 10 foot waves and I was being pummeled. I didn't do well, by the way. I'm not going to tell you I did well. I was crushed and, you know, I didn't know which way was up when the wave hit. But my kids itself, my, I've got uh, three kids, Spencer, Rebecca, Skyler are incredible. My son, Spencer, 13, you know, studies um, incredible science. He's going to be a scientist. He'll change the world with science and medical. My daughter would probably be, a, she's graphics dancer. So I got to watch her compete on stage, which is amazing. And, uh, and probably doctor who knows. And then, and then my youngest is a little bit like I was. So they always say, you know, he, he will go down that path. He's, when he was like nine months old, he was putting in his playpen books, books, books. And I didn't know what he was doing probably books. It was to dive head off first out of the playpen. <laughs> so, but, um, but it's amazing. And they are, you know, Keith, they are my life. That's, that's it. I think that they're enjoying, they come to the office you know, they, they get to see each of the offices I've been in and get to experience building a business the way I did. You know, I'd go home for lunch and see my dad's business all the time and stay, help them there. And they're getting to do that as well, which is exciting. That's awesome. Yeah. Like I kind of have, you know, similar. My, my dad was an entrepreneur and got to see what he went through and, you know, earned my stripes in terms of work ethic through him. And, uh, you know, hoping yeah. you know, my kids are learning the same values through, uh, through what I do. Yeah, no, my, my daughter, who she's, you can see the bracelet I'm wearing, but she's a, uh, she's very, very creative graphical artist. Like, and she could, so she created uncork bracelets and branded. And so, um, you know, so, so she'll probably have her own, who knows what she'll do, fashion design, something like that. Be amazing. Whatever it is. Awesome. So cool. Awesome. All right, Gary. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through all the great things you've accomplished throughout your career, all the great things that are going on at Uncork and uh, all the great advice for entrepreneurs to follow. Awesome. Thank you, Keith. It's a pleasure. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me on. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.